upper cross syndrome is when the shoulders go into protraction, so very rounded shoulders, and the neck goes into hyperextension. Pretty common, you know, when you think of people sitting at a computer, the kind of rounded shoulders and their necks, you know, arch, arched up a little bit. Pretty common, right? The pattern with that one was uh, lung chi insufficiency, and I'll tell you what we mean by that, but lung chi insufficiency, spleen and kidney chi deficiency. So if you look at that pattern, you can first of all see how the middle jowl is really compressed. Hi, I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. This happens often enough in my clinic that I expect to see it at least once a day. You might meet some of these people in your clinical work as well. They come in feeling broken. They're convinced that they don't measure up. Their feelings are somehow inappropriate. There's something that weighs on their heart, and they take it as proof of their dysfunction. I see this kind of thing in the woman who's lost a sibling, and she feels like there's something wrong with her because when four months down the road, she's not over it yet. And I see it in the teenager with anxiety because the 24-7 cycle of competition and high school social media posturing, it never stops. It's in the patient who has a kind of sensitivity to what's unspoken, and it's so loud and clear to them, and yet apparently they're the only one who seems to be noticing It makes them feel like they're lost in a wilderness, a denial and masquerade. Sometimes people come in to see us and it's due to their discomfort with a kind of superpower that they have. They are bothered by their sensitivity and their inability to convincingly lie to themselves. They think there's something wrong with them, but really that thing they think is wrong with them, it might be what's right with them. It's moments like this and really there's nothing to be gotten rid of other than perhaps bring some clarity and perspective to the situation. They aren't really broken. What's bothering them is actually something that's right about them. In a sense, it's an expression of their Zheng Qi. I suspect there's something trustworthy there. It's kind of like coming back home and being connected to a resource that allows them to root more deeply into something that can guide them through their current difficulty. You know, sometimes it's the world that's a little bit off. It's not us. Hey, I've got a few updates and some housekeeping things for you here. I recently told you about the Love Your Practice conference that LASA OMS is putting on uh, February 9th and 10th. There's been a little shift in the location from Southern California to the World Wide Web. This will make it easier for you to get access to the practitioners and the business people that are creating new, effective, and profitable ways of delivering acupuncture services in our modern world. Check out the show notes page for more information about attending this online summit. You probably already know that LASA is the largest supplier of acupuncture needles in the United States, and they've got an extensive inventory of quality products for your acupuncture clinic. LASA OMS is also dedicated to supporting the profession with educational resources like Geological in this upcoming summit of Love Your Practice. Visit their website for a wealth of educational blog posts, summaries from their webinars, and a schedule of upcoming webinars that range from clinical methods to practice management. In addition to supporting you and your practice, LASA OMS also works with state acupuncture organizations to help protect and promote the practice of acupuncture in East Asian medicine. They've got all kinds of specials that they do from time to time, so be sure to sign up for their mailing list so you don't miss out on any of the resources that they've got for supporting you in your practice. I want to share something with you about the podcast. You know, it's been a bit of a curiosity to me to see how this podcast is developing in the directions that it seems to want to grow in. 
This past weekend, we completed the first geological learning event in Seattle, Washington on the Sa'am acupuncture method. And if you missed this one, don't worry, as there'll be more here on geological on how you can learn to incorporate this method in the future. Also, I've been getting a lot of requests lately to have some kind of discussion forum attached to Geological. You know, there's already a Facebook group for Geological, and there's a small amount of discussion that happens there. But you know how it goes on the distraction machine. You go there for one thing, and 20 minutes later, you can't remember why you logged on. So in the near future, look for some discussion forums here on the Geological website itself. Couple things about it that make it really different than Facebook. First of all, these discussion forums will just be for geologicians. There's a reason for this, and the reason is I want to create a space for practitioners that are really serious about medicine and really dedicated to the learning of it. This is not for the general public. This is just for people like yourself that take the medicine really seriously. There's a big reason for not doing it on a public forum like Facebook mainly because there's too much noise and there's too much distraction. You know, Facebook feels free, but it's not. You pay for it with your game detention span and also a constant unfolding of your digital footprint that Facebook uses, not in your interest, but in theirs. So I'm looking to build this thing on the website. It's going to be a dedicated place where you can come and with practitioners who are engaged in the practice of their medicine have discussions that can take you deeper into the work that we do. Watch for these forums in the near future. Hey, y'all have heard me talk about the Shenlong Society Conference coming up in early March. Mayway Herbs is one of the sponsors of this fantastic conference on herbal medicine. Mayway is not only passionate about herbal medicine, but also in helping to advance the education and clinical skills of practitioners. And they are delighted to help support this conference. Today, we're about to get into a discussion on sinews and connective tissue. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I've got Brian Lau with me today. Brian is an acupuncturist who does all the usual things an acupuncturist does, but he's also got a special interest in neurology, sports medicine, and physiology, sinews in particular. And this is something that we're going to get into here today, sinews and all the stuff that's connected to it. Brian, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. You know, in school, we learn something about the sinew channels, but we don't learn much. And it seems these days, sinew channels are all over the place. I mean, we see it on different blog posts. Lots of different practitioners are talking about it. What got you involved in looking at these particular structures and channels and the work that you're doing with them? The interest in, from my point started really with my Tai Chi practice and Qigong practice. Uh, I started that in 1998 and it had a pretty big effect on me in a lot of ways. It, it, it jump-started an interest for me, but it had a big effect on my body. I noticed uh, things changing. You know, I was in good health. I, I started when I was 28. I was a wrestler in high school. I was, you know, pretty fit. I went jogging and, you know, pull-ups and that kind of stuff worked out. But the change in my body had a different feeling than the normal exercise I did. You know, I started noticing changes in posture without trying to stand up straighter. I just noticed that my, my posture changed pretty significantly. Wow. Just from Tai Chi. Yeah, and Qigong practice and, and, and the whole, the full scope of that. 
I noticed that my rib cage, like I had to go up a jacket size. Um, I went up a couple pant sizes without, I mean, eventually I put on a little weight to fill that in, I think, but it was really the bone structure was changing and the architecture of the structure changed. And a lot of the discussion we had on that was part of the Qigong practice involved what we called tendon changing exercises. And there were these tendons that were described running up the entire back of the body and, you know, a tendon from the fingers to the chest and all of that. Obviously not Western tendons, you know, what we think of in the West as tendons, but that kind of intrigued me both from the standpoint of, of what changes I noticed in my body. And then, you know, what are these tendons? These, these, that's kind of interesting. That's different than I know. This was before I was an acupuncturist, by the way. Uh, that led me to start studying. I became a, a licensed massage therapist and started studying structural integration, which is the body of work uh, that is uh, rolfing as part of that tradition. And that was around the time that many listeners might know of Tom Myers and the anatomy trains. Those are kind of yeah, I've um, got the book on my shelf. Yeah, yeah, a lot of you know, there's a lot of interest in that. He's a rolfer. He used to teach with the Rolf Institute. So what he was describing were not. Chinese medical channels. He was aware of them, but he was putting together what he found to be clinically interconnected myofascial structures. And to me, that seemed a lot like the tendons that we were talking about in the Qigong and Tai Chi training. So that in particular got me interested in structural integration. I became certified in structural integration and did that body of work before going back to school to become an acupuncturist. So then when I was in acupuncture school, I was so curious about what these sinew channels were. They seemed to be very similar to the anatomy trains and to this previous field that I had. But there really wasn't a lot of discussion about them. I remember talking with an instructor of mine who's pretty well regarded and known acupuncturist in the area, and he teaches nationally for various programs. And I don't mean to say this to sort of put him down in any ways, but when I asked him about it, he says, oh, don't worry about those. Those aren't important. <laughs> so since I decided to devote much of my career to it. <laughs> but, right, right. Well, you know, we all have the thing that catches our attention. Yeah, that's it. That was what caught my attention, or at least one of the things that really caught my attention. After that, when I finished school, I went to the sports medicine acupuncture certification program. I finished that program. I was asked to teach with that program. And that's when I really started putting a lot more effort into really understanding the channel sinews and trying to sort of make clinical decisions that were relevant decisions on which structures were part of which channel and sort of build that branch of, of Chinese medicine in a way that was very clinically relevant. And that's been an ongoing process since that time, you know, really developing them to make them consistent with Chinese medical channel theory, but um, also a little more specific on the anatomy. You know, they're very vaguely described in Chinese medicine from the classics, but there is, that is one of the sources to look at, of course. Well, I'm so struck here that your initial introduction to this came through an embodied practice that you were doing. You weren't trying to do anything other than learn this art of Taiji, and you noticed your body changing, your clothes fit different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to have people say, oh yeah, these things can change your posture. You know, we have these theories about why these things work, but you didn't come at it from that. You actually had the experience of having your physical being change itself. And then you come into Chinese medicine school and you go, oh, look at these. Yeah, I have some experience with these things. That's pretty cool. Now, you were just talking about that you can use these in terms of thinking about your treatment. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. Maybe even give us a, a little case study, something we may not be thinking about in our clinical work, but something that we might see in a common practice. 
one of the many aspects we're looking at with with defining the channel sinews and seeing which structures are associated with which channel. You know, we're looking at the classics, and by we, I mean myself and Matt Callison in sports medicine acupuncture. We're looking at the classics, what the Ling Shu says, chapter 13. You know, I don't read Chinese, but I can look at really good translations and, and discuss with other colleagues. Yeah, we're lucky to have great translations these days. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what do those say? They're kind of vague. They're open to interpretation, but they definitely are a, a very valid source. Um, we can look at just regular description of channels and, and primary channels and, and the points that are on them. But other things we're looking at is modern fascial research things like anatomy trains and, and Luigi Stecco has a really good system out there. He's a physio from, from Italy and we can talk about that if you want, but there's a lot of growth in the last couple of decades from the fascial research side. And that informs some of the work we're doing. Also functional anatomy. We say in the West, how things function and how things interrelate muscle structures to other muscle structures. That in particular, that functional anatomy relates to patellar tracking. And the way the patellar tracking goes is the patella tracks in the femoral groove of the, the femur and very typical imbalances that can lead to uh, wear and tear on the patella, chondromalacia patella. Very common um, things that occur is that the lateral quadriceps become overactive and they pull excessively through the lateral retinaculum. They pull the patella lateral and they, they disrupt patellar tracking at the same time the vastus medialis on the inside of the leg usually becomes inhibited and it doesn't properly resist the pull from the lateral side. So there's a functional anatomy thing. If you were to look at the functional anatomy of that and you were to kind of plug in the channel sinews, um, the way we have them defined in, in sports medicine acupuncture is that the lateral quadriceps is part of the stomach sinew channel, a continuous plane from the tibialis anterior on the anterior lateral leg up through the vastus lateralis and up into the abdominal muscles. So that would be part of the channel sinews of the stomach. And then the vastus medialis would be part of the channel sinews of the spleen. So we have these internally, externally related channels from Chinese medicine that we understand. We have these channels that have these strong relationship and an example of how they can interact in ways that can be useful to balance, something like the patella for this in this case, but also how they can become imbalanced. Sure. You're looking at classic excess deficiency. Exactly. And if you take that a step further, you put your hand, there's ways you can test them. You can test the firing order, how they fire, but you can just palpate them. And if you feel the lateral quadriceps, the vastus lateralis is very excessively tight and rigid. Maybe it excessively pulls the uh, patella a little bit lateral, but also it tends to pull it upward a little bit. So it kind of it kind of rotates the patella. And then you start thinking, well, geez, it feels like this, this vastus lateralis, this lateral quadricep, feels like it's excessively pulling upward. Hmm, maybe I'll ask the, the patient a question. Do you have acid reflux or something like that? Uh -huh. you, know, you start to see that it, it does. And, and very frequently you'll find a correlation between the internal, you know, symptoms and signs that they're discussing with you and what you're feeling under your hands, which of course isn't surprising. But if you have that information that this muscle is part of the sinew channel of the stomach, it just gives you a way of plugging that information in and, and more deeply understanding what the patient maybe told you when you were asking questions or it might guide your questions. You know, maybe you only have a second and you didn't have a chance to go through that thorough intake and you stick your hands on there and you feel that it's like, hmm, let me ask about their digestion and about things like acid reflux or belching or something like that. It's so often too, people come in because their knee hurts. Why am I here? My knee hurts. Usually acupuncturists will ask about digestion and, you know, the usual 10 questions will ask that. But sometimes we're busy and we don't ask it. 
or we ask it and people don't even think about it. And then they come back after a week or, you know, whatever, and they say, you know, my knee's better. And it's weird. I used to have acid reflux. Yeah, I noticed that's better too. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of acupuncturists, if they're working with the knee, they might make that correlation anyways, but it just kind of defines it a little bit more. You know, if you're working with those muscles, well, first of all, it, it gives you an avenue if you're an acupuncturist to work with the biomechanics of the knee and to have a little bit more finesse with it. But it's a way of then plugging it into the greater picture and and thinking, well, maybe the distal points I'm going to use are going to be based on what they're telling me about their digestion, plus what I'm feeling with the the mechanics of the knee and the patella. And then you can check the patella afterwards, and that can be a marker. Is this improving? You know, is there more movement on that lateral side of the patella? Am I able to sort of, you know, base my um, decision on the effectiveness on the work based on what they're telling me? Yes, they're getting better, but I also can put my hands on and feel that the structure is moving better. It's not as excessively rigid on the outside of the, the thigh, et cetera. It sounds like you do a lot of hands-on palpatory work in yes. your practice. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the questions are great for me in, in pulse and tongue, but I, I, I feel like I don't have a good understanding unless I can see, you know, postural assessment, which is kind of touching from a distance. That's what Ida Rolf referred to it as, um, postural assessment or putting my hands on and feeling the, the body. That, that to me is, is what brings a lot of, uh, understanding when I'm working with patients. I, I suspect too, you can palpate, do a treatment, go back and check your palpatory findings and assess the effectiveness of your treatment. Yep. Yep. Or manual muscle test or orthopedic tests. And, you know, that can all help. But again, if you, if you're looking at it from the channel sinew standpoint, that orthopedic test is not just a Western orthopedic test. It's now an assessment of the channel system. You know, you're assessing how well that part of the body moves and therefore you're assessing the channels. That's why I really like, that's why I get excited about the channel sinews is it gives you a way to take things within the Chinese medical system, but things that maybe aren't within the Chinese medical system, but help them link, help them correlate. So I can do Eli's test, which is looking at the flexibility of the rectus femoris, the quadricep. And I can use that as a window into how the, the body's functioning in terms of the channels. Well, it sounds like you've really taken the training that you've had with the functional integration and just married it right to Chinese medicine, and they go together pretty well. Yeah, I would I would say that's the case. And that's been also through the help of uh, working with Mac Allison. And that's one of the reasons I initially went to that program is because I felt like I had these two systems that were great, but they didn't really feel like they were speaking the same language. I don't even mean just that Chinese is a different language, but that they didn't feel, they felt completely different to me. And I said, well, how can it be that we all have the same body? How can these seem so different? I needed something to help bridge it. And that helped me working with that program. And then that helped me continue to develop and uh, kind of be able to marry those two, those two systems, plus, plus the movement system with Tai Chi, you know, all, all three of those really have been um, more and more becoming all part of the same thing. So I want to follow up with a couple of things here. The first one is how you go about developing a palpatory vocabulary, right? Because it seems like touching the body, I think, I think you just said it's, it, it's kind of a language and you have to learn that language. And, the, and then the other piece I want to get into in a little bit is how people that may have not who may not have had the same background as you with the functional integration can begin to maybe tap into that world and use it in their everyday practice. But let's start with the developing a palpatory vocabulary because this isn't something you do in a weekend. 
Sure. Yeah. It's an ongoing, just like any study of Chinese medicine, it's really a lifetime study, of course, but, but you can, you know, that can be daunting if I say that. So you can pick it up pretty quick and start applying it pretty quick. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on how to begin picking it up and being able to learn from it, being able to make sense of what you're feeling? First of all, let me say with palpation, I think many acupuncturists would agree with me that this is something that we don't teach. I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but but over overall in the nation, I don't think we teach enough palpation and I don't think we teach palpation consistently. I think palpation's hard and it's not just our field. It's a lot of fields. I mean, it's it's a very tricky thing to teach because it's it should be objective, but oftentimes it is a little subjective. You know, one person might think they're feeling something else and they say it's this and another person says it's something, you know, different structure. So it's not always easy. You know, I saw some research uh, based on experienced clinicians and how much discrepancy there was from what one was palpating versus the other. So meaning they were, they were trying to palpate the same thing, but their, their results were far different. Sure. Well, think about learning pulses. Yeah, exactly. So it's very similar, right? Type of palpation. But at the same time, I think we could do a much more thorough job in Chinese medical school for palpation. And and I think having a model of something like the sinew channels where that palpation starts becoming a lot more relevant, that you are indeed palpating at that moment, you're palpating the stomach, sinew channel, you're palpating the spleen, the liver, that, you know, whatever, if, if it was something that was more pertinent to, to the immediate practice, I think it would be a lot more well-received in school. Oftentimes the palpation part is in the Western classes, you know, anatomy and physiology, and it's not tied to the direct practice that people are learning when they're studying channels. Of course, you know, people, we, we palpate in channels, but we're palpating points and sometimes the related structures to those points, but sometimes that's very, a lot of discrepancy on, on how people find a particular point and what landmarks are looking for. So that's that's a thing. I think we could be better with palpation, but beyond palpation, if I could add to it, that manual muscle tests, testing the ability for a muscle to sort of lock on and fire, and orthopedic tests and range of motion and postural assessment, if those were part of the picture, that, that kind of complicates it a little bit more, I guess, but those I think are all components of assessing the body, assessing the ability for certain structures to stretch or certain structures to to sort of tighten up and lock on or certain structures when you're looking at the body, you know, this one particular region's pulling more excessively and distorting the posture. This one is not firing really well and supporting it. So the body, you know, starts to lean forward or something like that. I think all of those are are part of the assessment that is definitely involved with musculoskeletal work and assessment, but I think can also be applied to just general understanding of the organ patterns and, and really a lot of different things in Chinese medicine. That's all part of the picture, in my opinion. It sounds like you're training your eye with that one to literally be able to see where there's tightness or excess, where there is laxity, and how the structure holds together. You, you, you could literally see where there's a deficiency. Yes. So I'll give you an example on that one that is uh, pretty common. If you're looking at someone from the side, it's pretty common, especially as people get older, though not always. It's pretty common that their hips, their pelvis starts to move forward a little bit. By, by move, I don't mean that they're moving as you're watching them, but that it's it's sitting, you know, it's it's placement is, is forward of, say, the the malleolus or like GB40. If you drew a line up from GB40, their pelvis is, is in front of that line. 
And then the rib cage starts to kind of angle backwards. We would refer to it as a posterior tilt of the rib cage. And then usually the head juts forward. If you went back and you assess the channel sinews associated with that, one of the things, you know, that is in a buzzword now is the core. You know, a lot of the core muscles like the transverse abdominis are weak. Um, the muscles in front of the neck, the longus coli, which is, you know, one of the the neck flexors that's often weak and over lengthened. So a lot of these core structures, core is not always consistently defined, but you know, what I would refer to as core muscles are often weak and not supporting the structure in that case. I have those associated in the system that we look at with the kidneys and with the sinew channels of the kidney. So it's not uncommon to see you know, these, these support muscles like the kidney channel sinews to become sort of weak and, and deficient. And if you look at a lot of the symptomology people have, that there'll often be kidney deficiency signs. You know, this would be, Matt Callison actually did a little research on this and did questionnaires and postural assessment for a small sample group, but this has been kind of built on over the years. And people with that posture I just described, when they answered questions, had kidney chi and chi and blood deficiency signs and symptoms based on questionnaires they did and then the postural assessment. There was a high correlation for that. There's other common postures that you'll see that have very high correlations for certain Zongfu patterns. Have you written about this on your blog? Are there places where people can get some access to this? I have, boy, geez, I, I did write about that on my blog I can't remember now if it was a particular posture or if it was that as a whole. It's something, you know, that was initial research from Matt Callison. And maybe I'll make a point to have something on the blog, on the sports medicine acupuncture blog to highlight that. Because this is something he talks a lot about in in the intro to, to when we start doing postural assessment in the program. And it's pretty logical. Like I, another one that's common is if people look up upper cross syndrome, that's a, you know, PT word and, and others who do movement and postural assessment. Upper cross syndrome is when the shoulders go into protraction, so very rounded shoulders, and the neck goes into hyperextension. Pretty common, you know, when you think of people sitting at a computer, they're kind of rounded shoulders and their necks, you know, arch, arched up a little bit. Pretty common, right? Very common. The pattern with that one was uh, lung chi insufficiency, and I'll tell you what we mean by that, but lung chi insufficiency, spleen and kidney chi deficiency. So if you look at that pattern, you can first of all see how the middle jowl is really compressed. Um, again, if you assess the channel sinews associated with it, they they are imbalanced between the kidney and UB channel, between the stomach and spleen channel. A lot of the relationships, the lung and the large intestine channel, those are all out of balance with that posture. Uh, lung in, uh, chi insufficiency, we we it was defined that way based on the fact that when the posture changed, the lung pulse usually comes right back up. So it's not true lung lung chi deficiency where there's all the signs associated with that. Ah, but it's more lung chi deficiency due to posture and structure inhibiting the lung. Can't take a deep breath because everything's compressed. So once that posture changes, there's usually it's it's a really quick, you know, immediate change on on the pulse and immediate change on the on the lung chi. So it doesn't have the quiet voice necessarily, and a lot of the the things you'd associate with um with true lung chi deficiency. I'm I'm thinking of a lung chi deficiency due to some kind of pathology, but here you're talking about a structural issue. I don't know, you know, which way, which came first? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, certainly I think if you have the uh, structural issue first, it, it can lead to longer term issues. But you're right. It, it, it It's a very chicken and egg kind of thing. Yeah, because not everyone has the same posture. So sometimes, you know, maybe the, the organ pattern sets the stage and, you know, they, they start losing the energy and those muscles associated with it. And then they start developing the posture. 
I think it probably goes both ways, you know, I'm, I'm not the same with everybody would be my guess. Well, this is for me, one of the most frustrating and irritating and one of the most interesting and exciting things about Chinese medicine is where did that come from? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. You can sometimes understand it based on the history of the person, you know, maybe they had an accident or an injury that, that you can kind of tie it to. But I think sometimes it's just, you don't know, you know, you can make an educated guess, but probably the way you work with them might be the same regardless. So the fact that you're working with the whole structure and the whole body and everything, the Zong Fu, you know, everything, I think it's all part of the, the picture. Well, it's interesting for me to hear how you're bringing the Zong Fu into the sinew channels and just the channel relationships in general. When you say sinew channels, are you speaking about specific muscular or sinew structures in the body? I mean, you're, you're talking about meat, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about definitely muscles, but they're fascial compartments. So the muscles and the fascia, the myofascia, sometimes just fascial structures. So within the large intestine channel sinew, it includes muscles running up the, the forearm on the outside, you know, based on where you would think they would be, you know, muscles like the extensor, carpi, radialis, longus, and brevis. So muscles that would be in that region that you would think of as part of the large intestine channel sinew. But then those attach to the lateral epicondyle and they follow up the, the arm in the lateral intermuscular septum the fascial wall between the biceps and the, and the triceps. So in that case, all of a sudden, the channel sinews of the large intestine aren't just a muscle in its fascial bag. It's all this. Now it's just a fascial structure. And sometimes it might even be nerves, particular nerve structures. Uh, so I think it's really muscles, sometimes ligaments. In the channel sinews of the kidney, the adductor magnus is one of the muscles, and it attaches and blends in. It's right on the same line and blends in with the, the medial collateral ligament. So, you know, it can sometimes be ligaments, um, muscles, tendon, you know, Western tendons, muscles, tendons, uh, ligaments, fascial structures, nerves. But I think the fascia is the unifying part of that. It's things that are connected and interrelated through their fascia. So I remember when I was in school and we studied sinew channels for half a day. I mean, <laughs> a day, I, right? I might be exaggerating <laughs> here, but probably not much because there wasn't much to say. But we always thought of them as being like very, very superficial. Mm, and mm -hmm. what if I'm hearing you correctly, some of these fascial structures, some of these sinew channels, they can dive very, very deep in the body because they're actually part of what holds things in place and lets things move and, and they can go very deep. Yes. Yeah. That's debatable, of course. Uh, one of my colleagues did some research on those in Europe um, as part of a program he was taking. Classically, I think he would say that they probably were described more initially as being more superficial. Though it seems like translations in the Ling Shu doesn't always correlate, doesn't always agree with that. But um, the way I see them now, maybe, maybe maybe this isn't classically the case, but I think there's room for, for development here. The way I see them now is some of the structures like the psoas can dive really deep in the body. And that can be part of the kidney channel sinews. And interestingly enough, the kidneys move along the psoas. Their fascia is really in, intimately tied to the psoas. So I don't know if I would put the kidneys in the channel sinew of the psoas necessarily, but, but there's definitely a, a very strong relationship 
between in that case an actual organ and and the muscle that and its fascial you know surrounding that really dives really deeply into the body and then the liver sinew channel even though classically it's described as stopping as the gro- at the groin we kind of carry it up a little bit farther along that fascial plane deep into the pelvis and then along the quadratus lumborum all the way up into the back of the diaphragm so I think that the channel sinews can be very deep. I don't know if I would, with a strong amount of confidence, say this is what was being described in the classics. Maybe what I'm describing is really more the the muscles associated with the channels that's really part of the primary channels. You know, that's debatable, but I think it still makes it a very um, useful way of looking at sort of um, continuous myofascial structures that can kind of explain and help understand and build on our understanding of channels. Might not be classical. One of the things about the classics, they're terse, and there's a lot of room for interpretation. It just seems so often they point us in a direction, and then it's up to us to flesh it out, no pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, again, I, I am so struck by your experience of starting this journey, so to speak, by just practicing Tai Chi. I want to come back to the Taiji for a moment and see what does the Taiji practice say about sinews? And does that relate to what we would think about the sinew channels from our usual clinical Chinese medicine point of view? So the system, or at least part of the system that that I do, it's history, at least the the tendon changing exercises. You know, there's these exercises that are referred to as tendon changing and marrow washing exercises. I've never heard of those before. Oh, Tell yeah? us about them. Yeah, okay. No, I've never heard cool. about them. So the history of this has to do with a person who is a Buddhist. So this comes a little bit more from a Buddhist tradition. And the tradition that I do has really elements of Buddhist practice and Taoist practice and, and really the whole, especially the internal physical training within Taoist practice. Um, but there is a lot of Buddhist influence. You know, in China, things are very, it's an old history and Sometimes they don't separate everything like we do. Everything's kind of all part of the same thing. But this particular thread of it, this Buddhist practitioner from uh, from India uh, came as a guest. His name was Dhammo. Uh, Bodhidharma is another name for him. He came to, um, I think it was a Shaolin temple. And at this time, there wasn't a martial art tradition there. And the monks were too weak to practice meditation. You know, they, they couldn't sit long in meditation and it was hampering their development. And it was really a meditative practice that it was hampering because they just didn't have the physical strength for it. So, you know, legend has it, he went and meditated for nine years or something. I'm not sure about right. that. Cut off his eyelids yeah. or something so he wouldn't <laughs> yeah. fall asleep. Yeah. And there's, you know, supposedly there's a, on the mountain, there's an imprint of him because he sat so long on the mountain that the sun shadow that, you know, was produced from, from the, the sun hitting him was, uh, kind of etched in the mountain or something like that. I don't know. I have that quite right, but it's the idea is he, he thought about it for a while and he developed these, these exercises. <laughs> the idea is he thought about it for a while. <laughs> I think it's metaphoric. Nine, nine years is metaphoric. for something. <laughs> The idea is that he, he, he worked with them on this physical training of, of changing the tendons and changing, you know, washing the marrow of strengthening the body and, and opening up the body so that they could sit in meditation, so they could, you know, so they could devote and develop their time in meditation practice because before they was hampering their development. So they couldn't do their job as monks. Yeah, exactly. You know, they just couldn't physically sit. They were too weak. Um, so this was a, a physical training that helped them to be able to sit in meditation. So in doing that, of course, it's going to change the posture. It's going to strengthen certain muscles 
and structures that are are support structures, you know, that you would do if you're sitting or standing and and um, you know, just just kind of being able to to stand for a long time or sit for a long time. So that's where that tradition came from in our practice. And it's part of that, you know, the tendon changing, marrow washing type exercises. So that's the, an old tradition. And that's an old tradition. Yeah. And the founder yeah. of our organization had a I, I didn't meet him personally, but just from stories I've heard from him, he had a really deep understanding of the body. I don't think it was, you know, in, in the name of this muscle or that muscle, obviously, but he would often both give corrections in the practice to help change and, and, and open up the, um, you know, transform the body to sort of turn the wheel back and allow people to have better, more youthful health. But he would also work on them. You know, he'd pound on people and do Qigong type, type work on them where he was really you know, opening the body and changing the body. And sometimes, you know, you could see it happening very quickly. And sometimes, you know, that was a physical thing. Sometimes he would see that the person had, I don't know exactly what he was looking for, but that they had some really bad disease with the liver and he would have them recommend they go get it checked. If they didn't already know, you know, he'd ask what this particular person had wrong with them, what's wrong with their liver. And the person would be like, oh, there's nothing wrong with my liver. Well, go get it checked. And then he would open the channels up, you know, and channels, I I think he was thinking, meat and, and structure and, you know, muscles and, and joints and all that kind of stuff and, and really working on opening up the tendons, so to speak. And again, not the Western tendons, but the these sort of um, structures that really wrap around the body and support the body. So that wasn't a Chinese medicine practice per se, but obviously that that type of practice in the history of, of Chinese physiology was it was part of the influence of our understanding of channels now and our understanding of that system now. Well, it sounds like a piece of tradition, old tradition, that holds some knowledge of medicine in it. You know, I mean, there's so many different ways of viewing how our bodies work and, and how we can work with them. I think about, you know, the really old school osteopaths, right? Who put their hands on people and do some visceral manipulation. And things really change. I mean, it sounds like this guy was doing something like that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. In your practice, do you do much in the way of physical manipulation? I do. Yeah, I do a lot of manual work. Having the background in, in structural integration, there's a lot of myofascial techniques that come from that. I use a lot of those. We, we teach them within the sports medicine acupuncture courses now, and, and some of those are, are more and more are being based on some of the structural integration model, I guess, of myofascial release. So the difference being is when I used to do just myofascial release, now I do smaller amounts of it, but it it's all part of linking with which channels I'm working with and how I'm trying to change the channels. And sometimes that's a very physical, you know, move this channel up, move that channel down, you know, open the space between these two channels up. You know, it's a very physical practice, but I do a lot of manual work. And then um, we also teach and, and I, I also use some joint mobilization techniques and other types of manual techniques. It's a pretty big part of my practice. And occasionally, you know, I have no problem personally, if patients are just terrified of needles, I don't mind just doing manual work with them. And I don't really feel like I'm working. Obviously the tools become different and and sometimes, boy, I'd really like to use this tool of a needle in this particular case, but it's going to just stress the person out too much. I don't mind doing it manually. I feel like I'm work. I don't feel like I have to change how I conceptualize the treatment. I feel like it's working the same thing. Yeah. You're just doing the treatment. You can use your hands. You can use a needle. You could use a cup. You could use some gua sha. Do you do cupping and gua sha in your practice as well? I don't do as much cupping and gua sha. By that, I don't think that 
that has to do with my view on cupping and gua sha really more than as an educator. Sometimes I'm trying to practice what I teach. I don't really teach cupping and gua sha. So sometimes that guides my practice, even unintentionally, you know, I might be writing a blog post on something, or I might be getting ready for an upcoming class. And it's just, that's, those tools are in my head. And, and I have a very good comfort with, with doing manual work with my hands. And it's just sort of my go-to. And I keep on telling myself, I want to use more and more of those. And, and so my not using them is not that I don't think that they're a value. I just, they're not always my go-to. Yeah. You're working with the stuff that you're working with. And, you know, it seems that whatever path we follow with this, if we're paying attention, it will open up for us and we'll learn things. We'll see new things. We'll catch things that we didn't catch before. We get better at what we do because we're paying attention to what we do. But that, you know, that is necessarily a bit limiting, right? You have to be focused on what you're doing. I have been playing with cupping though and cupping and gua sha more recently and trying to apply some of the same direction uh, that I would with myofascial release. You know, for instance, if you're working with flat feet, flat feet would have something to do with the, the channel sinews of the spleen and kidney. So, you know, there's a lot of spleen cheat deficiency. You kind of wonder maybe that collapse of the medial arch has something to do with the spleen not holding function. You know, it's a loss of that that holding function of the spleen. I, I, I see that correlation a lot. And then those muscles start to become weak and, and inhibited. But with that channel sinews approach, if you're looking at a pes planus, you know, collapse of the medial arch, certain structures on the outside, you know, part of the UB sinew channel are pulling excessively up and, and kind of collapsing the arch and other ones on the spleen sinew channel aren't really supporting the arch. So you want to move the UB channel down and you want to move the spleen sinew channel up. You know, I mean, physically in, in the myofascial work, I would direction, I would hook into that tissue and mobilize it in a downward direction for the UB um, sinew channel, at least for this portion of it, and then lift the spleen ch uh, sinew channel. You can do that with a needle where you wrap the needle in, you know, kind of turn the needle until it catches the fascia and pull the needle up or down, depending on which channel you're working with. Um, so you could maybe do that with cupping or gua sha too. You know, it's still the direction, the intent, and how you use the um, those those tools to be able to mobilize the tissue and kind of say, you know, hmm, maybe you can be over here. You know, maybe you don't have to pull up so much on this this portion. Maybe it can pull down, you know, or move down a little bit. I love having this conversation with you. So often, we think about acupuncture as being this kind of air quotes here energetic medicine. I'm kind of a meat and potatoes guy. I live in the Midwest, right? <laughs> Me too. So, Not in the Midwest, but I, I agree. <laughs> right. So, I mean, when people come in, they go, I'm, I'm here for some like, you know, alternative energy medicine. I, I, I usually want to send them somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I want to see some changes in the meat suit. Yeah. And, and I kind of like putting my hands on the meat mm -hmm. and, and seeing what I feel and feeling how it might change, soften, supple, you know, or in places where it's, you know, too weak, uh, you know, feel it tense up a little bit. So it, it's really fun to hear you talking about just getting your hands on and asking the body to do something different. Now, for those who haven't taken the kind of training that you have or are taking the trainings that you offer, if they were interested, how would you start to incorporate some of this stuff? Are there are there some books or resources you would recommend? Are there any videos online? If this is something that people literally want to get their hands on because they like putting their hands on people, I'm thinking of the, you know, Twain Off folks and people that just, you know, they like to touch the body. Well, I, I hope there's a book on the way, <laughs> not in the immediate future, but Matt Callison and myself are working on 
a book, you know, he has a really large book about to be released that's really more on assessment and treatment of injuries using Chinese medicine. And that's been a book for about in the works for about 20 years now. And that should be done within the next year. And then we're going to start working together on a book on the channel sinews that I guess might be considered to be a, um, a com- you know, a book that accompanies the, the, the book he's about to release. Um, but it could be a standalone book too. It'll be some techniques. It'll be um, assessment, postural assessment, other, other manual, you know, orthopedic evaluation and other tests. But again, linking those with which channels you're working on and, and then going through an, an assessment uh, analysis of which structures are part of which channel and, you know, functional anatomy and the whole thing. But that, to be honest, that might be a few years away. It's in the process now via our classes we teach. So that's stage one. It's in the process via my blog. Um, that's in some ways I kind of view that as a rough public draft. <laughs> um, right, a rough public draft. That's great. You know, because it kind of gets me saying, okay, I need people are going to see this, so I need to put some time into it. I need to, I need to put this out. It's not the final version, but I want it to at least be, you know, acceptable. Yeah, share what you got at this moment. Yeah, that's sort of a um, motivation factor for me. That's how, that's why I started doing the blog. Really, is just to kind of motivate myself to to finalize some things, at least maybe finalize isn't the word, but, but anyways, my blog is, um, sinewchannels.com, www.sinewchannels.com. So there's some resources on there. You know, it's not a book yet. So it's, it means that it's a little bit, um, when I say unorganized, you know, one week might be on patellar tracking. The next week might be on mechanics of the shoulder. You know, it's not in, in chapter and in linear order. It's kind of whatever the subject of that moment is, but you know, you can kind of sift through that and find some good information. Sports medicine, acupuncture, we have a blog and and I write on that sometimes on the sinew channels, but then others, other authors, including Matt Callison, put some stuff up and and that can be related to assessment and all of that. So those would be things to look at. Um, in terms of other resources, the Anatomy Trains is I really think it's just a fantastic book. And there's so much there that the downside it's not really a downside in terms of their system. It's, it has nothing to do with their system. The downside is the language is different. And it can be very daunting for acupuncturists to be able to translate. You know, they can learn something from it. And people who have a lot of experience already with manual therapy and that kind of stuff can learn something from it. We had uh, in the program up until recently, we had um, one of the anatomy trains, one of uh, KMI is the name of their program, Kinesis Myofascial Integration we had one of the um, senior instructors teaching with us as a guest instructor. You know, she was teaching the anatomy trained stuff in our in our manual therapy portion of the sports medicine acupuncture certification. And it was great. I mean, she was such a dynamic instructor, super knowledgeable. But, you know, she would be talking about the, the superficial backline, not the UB sinew channel. Well, it's easy enough to say that's the UB sinew channel, but it's not. You know, it kind of is, but it's kind of not. You know, here's where it differs. And you're, you're learning this new system and all of a sudden you're using language that is kind of close to Chinese medicine in terms of the structures they're talking about, but they say it a different way, but they don't 100% correlate. And it's just, it's as good of a system it is, it's a system for structural integration practitioners and, and other osteopaths and, and other manual therapists. And it's kind of close to the Chinese medicine channels, but almost close enough to be confusing and you know sometimes because it doesn't quite correlate enough. Um, and that, again, I'm not saying that to put down that system. I think it's a fantastic system and it's influenced me greatly. It sounds like it's influenced you tremendously. Yeah, it has. But it sounds like it's also in some ways opened your eyes to looking at sinew channels beyond the way that we look at it in Chinese medicine. And yet 
I keep hearing you talk about it in such a way that everything dials back to Chinese medicine. We're looking at this channel. We're looking at this organ function. Yeah, I mean, if the, if the sinews aren't being nourished from the channel and the related organs are related to that, then sure, the channel, the, the sinews might be overactive or they might be weak or they might be, you know, they're going to be part of the picture. You know, maybe you just had an injury. Maybe you just were out and you fell off your bike or something, you know. I mean, obviously, not everything is an organ-related thing. That's what we learn in Chinese medicine anyways. That's not anything new. But for these chronic things, it, it very frequently is the case, which I'm sure nobody listening to this would be surprised at. It is very frequently the case that that muscle imbalance is related to the channels in a, in a larger in a larger way or the organs in a larger way. I've got that book on my shelf. It's been sitting on my shelf. And, and now that we're having this conversation, I'm going to have to go pull it out and give it more of a read tonight. And just in having this conversation with you, there's some language that you've used. I'm sitting here kind of nodding my head going, I kind of think I know what he's talking about because I don't know my anatomy the way that you do at least at this point. I used to. I used to know it really well when I was studying it, but that's been 20 years ago. When I think about the different way that different medicines have of looking at the body, especially when they're talking similar, like anatomy trains and, and we could talk sinew channels or, or acupuncture meridians, it's almost like a verbal language, but a dialect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean. Where it, you can get the general gist, and then there's places where it's just a little goofy, but you can get the gist, and you can kind of translate it. And it seems like that, perhaps with the anatomy trains, and with the sinew channels. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's just different dialects for the same thing. Yes, kind of. Anatomy trains. I'll give you an example here: is that they have lines that go up, you know, myofascial planes that go up and down the body, but they have some arm lines and they have four arm lines. Well, we have six channels in the arms, right? So right there, it's subdivided a little bit differently. And sometimes when you follow their lines, it doesn't explain Chinese medicine so well um, in the sense that you could use them. You can use them for manual work, and you can you and they use them in a great way to to assess the body's posture and see which which of these lines are in a shortened position and how to open those lines up and all of that. So, so the way they use them for their system is is great. I mean, there's there's no. I don't think there's much. You know, I think it's a very strong, very very profound system. But when you try to take acupuncture understanding and say, well, why is it that Sanjiao 3 has an effect on the ears based on this this line. It doesn't seem to correlate that way. So when you're using distal points, if you're just needling locally, needling the local points, I think you could use their system very well if you understood the anatomy that they're discussing. But it doesn't always correlate with understanding how that relates to a channel. Whereas in my understanding, the way we define the channel sinews, the Sanjiao channel comes up and, and, and encompasses the um, clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid. And if you look at the sternocleidomastoid clavicular head, like in trigger points, if you look at Travell's book, she highlights how that, that can cause dizziness. It can refer into the ear. It can um, be a part of, of various ear dysfunctions. You know, when that muscle becomes dysfunctional, it can throw off the equilibrium and cause vertigo. It can, it can cause pain in the ear, et cetera. Then all of a sudden, if you see that the channel sinews of that muscle include this this clavicular head of the SEM, it starts to make sense why certain points along the Sanjiao channel would treat dizziness and treat 
you know, ear problems and that kind of stuff. You know, maybe what it does is partly uh, regulate tension in the in the sternocleidomastoid. You know, maybe that's part of its how it how it affects the ear. So that part isn't isn't apparent in um, anatomy trains because it's not trying to it's not trying to explain the channels in Chinese medicine. It's, it's looking at something different. But they have one of their forearm lines looks kind of like the large intestine sinew channel and looks kind of like the San Zhao channel, kind of like a merge between the two. But it's not as specific enough for acupuncturists, in my opinion. Well, the thing I, I enjoy about this conversation with you here today is you are overlaying different maps on the body. So, so we're just talking anatomy trains. It shows us something. Some of it's useful, some of it's not. Overlay Travel in some trigger points. Oh, now you can really see it and why a distal point might affect the clavicle, which in effect would affect the ear, dizziness, balance, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the and I guess in this development of the channel sinews, that's part of that's been part of the thing is looking at these different maps because I feel like if it's true in one system, I mean I think Travel system is great. So if it's true in her system, then, well, it shouldn't contradict our understanding of channels and it shouldn't contradict these other systems. You know, they should add insight to each other. Um, and when they don't, then, you know, you have to kind of sit down with her for a while and try to kind of parse it out and try to make sense of it. Yeah. So well, it um, helps to have the different views. I, I had someone recently, I can't remember who it was, but they said, if you're looking for a house, you want a street map with addresses. You don't want a topographical map. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, you're not going to find what you're looking right for map. on a topographical map. Mm -hmm. You're going to find it on a street map. And, and when I hear you talking about, you know, trigger points or anatomy trains, these are, they're, they're different maps of the terrain and they can bring different things into view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we have a mutual friend here and that was Josh Lerner. Yes, we and do. I think he said this about it, which is kind of Good because he was using it for roads. You know, it's not going to. Was it him that said this? I think, I think it might so. Have been. Yeah, oh, okay. and, and he and he said something along the lines of, though that topographical map might explain why the road winds in this particular place. Once you notice there's a hill or a mountain, and the reason it's winding is that you know the road's winding up. Whereas if you look at it with just a street map and you just see lines, you might realize you might think, well, geez, why does the road all of a sudden do this zigzaggy thing here? That seems kind of arbitrary. But now with the topographical map, you say. Oh, there's a there's a mountain there. It's winding up and down the mountain. It makes it makes sense why that road it does that. It makes total map. sense that way. So so but at the same time it's not a road map, but it it can give you insight into, you know, maybe it runs into a forest or something and that's why the road ends there. It's not just an arbitrary, you know, ending of the road. So so they they kind of inform each other even though they're not necessarily saying the same thing. It's a great way to say it. Thank you brother Josh for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned trigger points in Shannon Travell's work. I'm wondering how some of that might fit in with the sinew channels. When I was uh, first invited to teach with sports medicine acupuncture certification, we were making some changes in the program and, and part of the anatomy palpation cadaver lab, there's a lecture that I do and there's a lecture that Matt Callison does. And my lectures started uh, to, to involve really the channel sinews. You know, Matt talked a lot about channel correspondences with stuff and he would talk about the channel sinews, but he was really talking more about kind of the, you know, channels. And I was thinking, well, no, it seems more like the channel sinews were, are really 
the description that's being discussed here. So I started to to teach on the channel sinews and my intention was really to go through anatomy trains and just kind of redefine them a little bit and say, okay, this superficial backline that they're talking about is the bladder sinew channel. You know, I thought it'd be kind of easy because I knew it a lot about anatomy trains is something I'd worked with for a while and I've taken classes with them and, you know, I, I had a pretty good founding of that system. But then when I started saying, yeah, well, it's not quite the UV channel and you can make this change. Well, you make one change and it's sort of a domino effect. You know, it's like, well, then now I have to change this because these channel sinews all, in my opinion, are all connected through the fascia. That's that's how they communicate with each other is through the pull on the fascia. So I had to look at a lot of different systems and I was pretty familiar with Travel anyways. So the feeling that I and other acupuncturists who use Travel uh, who notice a channel theory theory correspondence, even though she's not a Chinese medicine practitioner, is that the the referral patterns tend to refer down a channel, and they and I find that they tend to be on the channel sinew that it's associated with. So if there's a um, supraspinatus muscle, which kind of is an area where two channels converge. You know, it's it's a convergence of the large intestine and the small intestine channel sinew. You know, the belly of the muscle, you can reach through the motor point at small intestine 12, but then the large intestine 16 point will, will needle into its tendon. And if you look at the channels, primary channels, the large intestine channel intersects at SI12. There's, in Chinese medicine channel theory, there's a lot of correlations between the, the LI and the SI channel for the supraspinatus muscle. And the referral, if you needle, if, if there's trigger points and the referring causing pain, and if you needle that point, it's not uncommon for the um, supraspinatus to refer into the lateral epicondyle and down the LI channel. So it seems like it has a pretty strong correspondence down the large intestine channel. So there's a lot of muscles like that. If they're on a particular channel, their referral patterns tend to refer down that channel. The quadratus lumborum, which might take some explaining, um, but if listeners just kind of go with me on this one, it's on the liver channel sinew, and it will often refer into the groin, so into the liver channel, not uncommon for it to do that. It's also often refers into the hip along the GB channel, and I find that a distal point that really affects it is liver five, the low connecting point. So it's kind of interesting that it's this muscle that refers both halfway between the large intestine, I mean, excuse me, halfway between the liver channel and the gallbladder channel. Some of its referral is into the liver channel, some of it's into the gallbladder channel. But its point that seems to have a distal effect on it is is the low connecting point. So some of that crazy, funky sciatica that you've been trying to treat, maybe liver five is helpful for that. Yeah, especially if you find that there's a elevation on, you know, the ilium's elevated on that side. Um, the QL is hypertonic. You press on the QL and it refers down that that pathway somewhere. I'm an advocate for needling the QL directly, but one of the strengths of our medicine beyond just needling a local muscle is that we also have this great channel system. So we can correlate it with liver five. That'll have an effect on it. Maybe that liver channel muscle is really overactive and short and the gallbladder channel muscles like glute medius and minimus in that case would often be kind of weak and inhibited. Well, maybe you can use gallbladder 40, you know, and you have a source low connection. You know, you're needling this source point along this, this channel where the muscles are deficient and you're needling the, the low connecting on the liver channel and you're sort of rerouting, you know, you're, you're balancing the energy energetics, if you want to say it that way, you're balancing the energetics of those channels at the same time that you're needling, I would use motor points in this case, but the motor point of the gallbladder 
muscles, the glute medius or minimus, and then the motor point of the QL. Yeah, this has got to be really satisfying for you that we've got these really interesting theories and they're fun, but you can put your hands on people and feel this stuff and then see why they say, oh, here, you know, here's a low source treatment. And then you can test it afterwards and see if it changes. So that's fun. That's actually something we do in um, teaching this in sports medicine acupuncture is we'll sometimes do a, a test, like a manual muscle test of the, the glute medius minimus. And if it's weak, you know, you put gallbladder 40 in and test again while the needle's in. That's not treatment, really. That's, that's part of the assessment. And see, does that change it? Yeah, oftentimes it does. You need to take the needle out and maybe it, after a couple seconds, they get up and get a drink of water and come back. The muscle will often be weak again. But you can understand that that point was doing something. You saw it, you, you, you know, you put it in, you felt it do something and, and in a larger, more comprehensive treatment, that point, plus needling the muscle itself, plus needling the muscles that are also out of balance as part of, you know, you, when you do a comprehensive treatment, give them exercises, you know, the whole picture, it's going to start to become much more lasting. So it's nice to kind of start playing with, you know, putting a point in and then going back and palpating and seeing if the, if the muscle still feels really rigid or putting a point in and doing that orthopedic test you know, Eli's test, which is one for rectus femoris, and you put a stomach channel point in, maybe stomach 40, you test Eli's and in the range of motion is instantly better. You know, again, it gives you that, that instant feedback that, that something changed. Yeah. You don't have to wonder, might this be useful? And then, you know, when I do the full treatment, I'm going to put that point back in because I saw, you know, right away how that point was useful. So in that case, it's not even treatment. Yes. It's, it's just, it's assessment. It's part of the assessment. Hmm. You know, it seems like the stomach this muscle of the, the, the channel sinews of the stomach's affected. I'm going to try, you know, I know when I go to treat, I'm going to, I'm going to needle the motor point of the rectus femoris, but I want to see which distal point is going to have the most bang for the buck here. So when I go do the full treatment, I know which one to put in. That sounds wonderful and fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of play. So, <laughs> I have found this work is play. When I approach it in, in a more playful way, which doesn't mean I'm not taking it seriously. I am taking it seriously, but when I approach it with a little bit of a playful attitude, it's way more fun and I discover a lot more. Yeah. I think patients like it a lot more too. And patients <laughs> like it more. <laughs> I think they do. Yeah. This has been delightful to talk with you today about this. I, again, I realize I need to go study my anatomy more. There's, there's moments it sounded like you were speaking something even beyond Chinese. <laughs> you really know your anatomy. <laughs> Well, thanks, and I suspect yeah. it really helps with this stuff if you know your anatomy cold too, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, this the, the approach that I work in is definitely an anatomy heavy approach. I feel like that's the information. And, you know, and to be perfectly honest, there's only so much room my brain has. So sometimes, you know, that means that other things kind of, I lose a little sight of, you know, I don't, I don't have as sharp a skills on because I've put a lot of effort into the anatomy. Partly I know it because I'm an educator and, and I'm continuing to discuss it in that context. I know anatomy very well for, for an acupuncturist, and I think that's the education side of it. But, um, but yes, definitely the way I work, it, it's helpful to have a, a, a very good working knowledge of the anatomy. Mm -hmm. For your regular everyday acupuncturist like myself, if I wanted to bone up on my anatomy a bit, if I wanted to get better at understanding certain structures so that I could help my patients. Are there any places where you'd point me out to begin, you know, things that would be, that would give me kind of a big bang for the buck or things that are not subtle, things that are, you know, easy to, to notice, oh, this is working, this is not working. 
so that I could uh, build a palpatory vocabulary. I could give um, a couple sources that aren't part of the profession that are really good. I think there's more sources. You know, I think that there is a movement to at least have a specialty within acupuncture that is much more anatomy driven, I guess. And, you know, that tends to be musculoskeletal orthopedic based acupuncture, though I think it applies to a lot of different things. So there's a lot of resources on the way. You know, I mentioned that Matt and myself will be working on a book. Matt has a book coming out. I would highly recommend that. That'll probably be within the next year. So keep an eye out for that because I'm really an advocate for it being within our profession because it, you don't have to have the translation side of it. You know, if you already know the, the kidney channel and, and this technique that's being discussed is related to that, well, that just makes it a lot easier to, you know, the part of the integration is already done. You don't need to go through that so much yourself and put so much effort into it. But there's a lot of Facebook and social media groups. Um, I'm on uh, a group um, discussions on orthopedic acupuncture. I think there's a lot of good discussion on that group. There's a couple other groups out there that are like that. So, and then sometimes people post videos and various things. So that's a nice way to start to get kind of used to the language and the the thoughts that are involved. You know, everyone has a little bit of a different approach, but but they're all coming at it from a, a functional anatomy type type approach. Um, my blog and the sports medicine blog, I think is a really good resource because it's again in the language, you know, it might be new language, right? It might be talking about a specific anatomical structure that somebody doesn't know, but it's related to a particular channel and a particular idea of Chinese medicine. So it's not, you know, it's learning something new, but integrating it into something you already know. And it's such a complex system that we've taken the time to learn that it's nice to really integrate it back in. But in terms of straight anatomy, there's a, a book and a palpation-based book, and he has a nice social media page that he puts some nice videos and discussion on by a great name for somebody who does this, Joseph Muscolino. Um, <laughs> I don't know how he ended up with that name. It's a great benefit for his line of work. He's a chiropractor, and I think he, his, his target audience is primarily massage therapists, more clinical massage therapists. But he has just really good, insightful ways of, of talking about palpation and making sure you're palpating the structure you think you know some some step-by-step procedures and and he talks a little bit about those aspects but um i really like his discussions because it's very clear um it's easy to follow for manual therapy and of course he's going to be talking about various structures you know but not from a chinese medicine standpoint i really like till luca uh, t-i-l and his last name's l-u-c-h-a-u he has a couple videos or series of videos and articles and books and it's he's he's a rolfer he teaches at the Rolf Institute, but he has his own series of classes that he teaches elements of that work to primarily massage therapists, but um, others too. And his resources, I think, you know, it's very profound understanding, but it's very clear. Kind of, you know, I'm kind of a simple kind of guy. You said meat and potatoes. I'm kind of that way too. I don't like things that get too heady, even though, you know, sometimes you have to learn and you have to learn anatomy. But I, I think the application of it often is, you know, nothing simple if you don't know how to do it, but it should be kind of simple at the same time. And his stuff is kind of like that. It's very, um, I don't want to say simple, but it's clear and it's its not overly um, academic, even though it does require you to understand the anatomy. But I like his stuff. I think he has a lot of um, things that are easy to apply into our practice and start to kind of integrate into more of a Chinese medicine mindset. But I think there's more stuff on the way is, is the, the goal. I think there'll be in the next several years, there'll be more and more coming out of the acupuncture world that then right from the get-go integrates it into the the world, you know, the world that we already know and the the language that we already know. Learning something new, but you're applying it 
you know, you're, you're putting it into the context of something you already know. It makes it easier to learn something new when you've already kind of got an idea that you can hang it on to. Yeah. You're just adding some nuance. And then I think it kind of deepens what you do already know. It's like, wow, geez, now I'm looking at that thing I already knew in a different way. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. It certainly is. Oh, and of course, Travel. I should mention Travel. I think Travel's two books, two volume books are really just fantastic for the, for acupuncturists. Again, she doesn't mention channel theory or anything, but you can start to understand her information through a channel perspective without a whole lot of effort. Sure. We can just take the map that we have and lay it on there and go, oh, look, there's a mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, those, those are fantastic resources. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time today. I feel like we could go for another couple of hours, but we'll stick a bookmark in it for today. Well, I very much enjoyed the conversation. It was great. Friends, that's it for today's Geological. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to support the show, there's a couple different ways to do that. One is just popping right over to iTunes. You can leave a review over there. If you do, it's helpful if you write a little comment about the show, something that you enjoy about it. It helps other people to find the podcast. You can also support the show by just telling your friends. Let them know that it's out there. Let them know it's a resource that you found to be helpful, and it will help them as well. And finally, if you'd like to become a geologician, it is a way of supporting the show with a little bit of money every month, help keep a little inspiration in the teacup. And there's some extra content for you that's over on the website. And it's another way that you can support the show. As ever, you know my little geeky thing about postcards? Yeah, if you uh, would like to send one of those to me, you'll find the address of the International Geological Headquarters over on the website. Totally puts a grin on my face to get a postcard in the mail. I know it's old fashioned, but uh, that's the way this podcast rolls. Thanks as ever for listening to the show. I hope that you've enjoyed it and tune in again next week.